Welcome to another of the short Cood Street podcasts that Jonathan Strawn and I have been doing since March. And today I'm delighted to spend, oh, 10 or 15 minutes with the great historical novelist and all too infrequent science fiction and fantasy novelist, Cecilia Holland. Uh, so the first thing I have to ask Cecilia, since you're in Northern California, is are you on fire yet? No, we're just buried in smoke. Everything is yellow. Uh, the air stings. It's just really not fun. But I live on the coast, it's, it's you know, been like and we get a tremendous, tremendous amount of yeah. rain. And so it never really burns here, but it all blows in from everywhere else. It does sound apocalyptic. Um, and Oh, it is. And yet you're... Well, but 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 you're you're remote from any big urban areas, so this is uh, just. It, it it sounds to me like you're living in an environment like we used to read about in, in, in Earth Abides, which is the one novel that keeps coming up, the old George R. Stewart novel, which I think took place right. in Northern California. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, it is kind of a, uh, it's a very rural area. It's very of uh, country. I live. Um, a mile and a half from the nearest city, and the nearest city is 10,000 people. Um, yeah, okay. Uh, you know, we don't have, you know, we've got enormous numbers of trees. Everything is incredibly green and incredibly overgrown. And uh, it's, we have the greatest trees in the world up here, and they're the dominant life form. The people just sort of crawl around the bottom. So I'm, as far as I'm concerned, that's great. That sounds great, yeah. Well, given the stress mm-hmm. of being being in yellow skies and being uh, at least in a safe part of the um, safe part of the state, yeah, yeah. Are you well, able to get any? Less. Yeah, well, are you able to get any reading done during this uh, weird, weird summer oh, we've had? Uh, yeah, it's practically all I'm doing is reading. I can't go see friends. I can't do <laughs> right. anything. You know, reading, reading, and writing. And um, I've been reading, I've been doing uh, a, a lot of incredible amount of reading about the American Revolution, because I'm writing a, a book now about the American Revolution. And uh-huh. um, there's some wonderful stuff. There's um, a guy named Rick Atkinson wrote a book called The British Are Coming, which is a, a wonderful uh, review of the, uh, the beginning of the revolution. And uh-huh. David Hackett Fisher who is, I think, the, one of the greatest writing historians right now alive. I did a, a, a book about uh, Washington, called Washington's Crossing about Trenton and the Battle of Princeton. And those are the main focus of my book. And uh, uh-huh. it's just bliss. But also, you know, any kind of, of uh, eyewitness accounts I can find. I'm, I'm reading um, everything I can lay my hands on, you know, guidebooks. Trying to find things on uh, on Google Maps and things and Google Earth and mm-hmm. um, this is, it's just this it's, is it's a lot of fun. This is what I love to do, you know. It's, you know. it's 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 always sounded to me every time we talk like you you enjoy the, the the novel is the excuse to read everything up to do all the research which you really love doing. Yeah, I love doing this kind of thing. I love to uh, try to imagine myself back into the past. And uh, when you read the, also when you read the stuff that is written at the time, you realize that uh, we look back at, at the past and it looks so cut and dry to us. It looks sort of obvious, like, mm-hmm. you know, it was all a very straight, sure line. And it's just as chaotic as it is now. And uh, these people were just as 
as lost and confounded as we are. And there's nothing, for me anyway, amazingly reassuring about that. Um, you know, it's always been effed up. And um, and the, the, one of the things about uh, about doing the revolution is you realize that uh, th- this is uh, one of the greatest events in history. It was just um, the ordinary people out there uh, taking on the, the biggest empire in the world. And um, uh, and the, the British soldiers were, uh, you know, a professional unit. They were the greatest army in the world. And here's a bunch of ragged, barefoot farmers uh, taking them on and eventually winning. And uh, it's uh, it's very exciting. It's also a reminder of the people that we were and that we could be again if we can uh, overcome whatever that's it is that's dragging us down now. Well, I, one of the things that comes up a lot in the in the last couple of years, and it's uh, it, it, it's not just with musicals like Hamilton. It comes up in discussions of uh, what's happened with the with the virus, for example. For the first time in, right. in decades, I hear a, dis, a discussion about the responsibility of the states versus responsibility of the federal government, um, and and the states are acting like a confederation of states again, rather than even having a central government. Well, the problem is right now the central government is just not working. I mean, it's, it's not, not working. working. No, no, the the uh, the president doesn't preside. He doesn't lead, and uh, Congress is in total gridlock, and so it isn't working. And so it is all being thrown onto state governments and local governments. And uh, local people uh, quite often are stepping up and doing the job, and uh, that's only going to strengthen. The uh, the whole you know basic structure of democracy, which is that local people do the job, and I'm really just um, I mean I'm in despair a lot about this because uh, you know at the time we've lost the chance to get it under control, and now it's wow. just going to run through us like a wildfire, and um, I'm really hoping we can avoid the worst of it, but. Uh, you read about the 1918 pandemic, or any and of the that, great. It's a great book. I don't know if you've ever read this book. This is uh, uh, this is a Chicago guy, um, uh, William McNeil, wrote a book called uh, "Plagues and Peoples." Oh yeah, about the effect. Yeah, have you read that book? A long I time ago. It. Yeah, I reread it about about two months ago because of the what's going on. And I mean, that is first of all, he's a. a, a a wicked good historian. He loves going out on a limb and then daring you to saw it off. And oh, yeah. this book was, is just a he was revolutionary like book. Okay. He was the king mm-hmm. of the University of Chicago History Department for a long time. Oh, period. he certainly was. Yes. He was um, and he was so he loved getting in arguments. And uh, he, all through the book, he keeps saying, there's no real evidence for this, but I'm just throwing it out there. And it's all been proven <laughs> since then. That book was published. 50 years ago, it's been proven how, how right he was about so many things. Um, uh, the effect of the of pandemics on human history had never really been looked at before because, you know, you can't see a germ. You can see George Washington, but you can't see a germ. And uh, and we were still under the, the influence of the old historians who were all, you know, big event people, big... Um, yeah. uh, Walking head people, and not um, as is much more uh, 
prevalent now. The, you know, the large scale events that are uh, have, uh, you know, are, are much more on the, uh, you know, uh, much vaguer kind of thing. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, cleometrics and that kind of thing. Um, but it's a great book, and it was uh, a lot of fun to read it under these circumstances. Well, and that's one of the ones I, I can understand entirely looking at that book, which in a sense makes more sense than what I've heard from a lot of people who are going back and reading Daniel Defoe or, or the Journal of the Plague Year or Camus. or uh, Yeah, yeah, I read no. Journal of the Plague Year too, and, and you know, uh, it, that's a, a good Defoe is wonderful. But um, it's, it's good journalism. It's like the beginning of journalism. Right. Yeah. Well, he was uh, uh, he was a one off. He was a very interesting writer who didn't do what anybody else did. And mm-hmm. uh, which is, you know, very interesting, very good guy. Do you have, have comfort? Do you have things that uh, apart from confronting what's actually happening in the world, are there? comfort food kinds of reading that you go back to? A lot of people go back to murder mysteries, it seems. Um, well, I, I read um, Natasha Pulley um, uh, this spring, too. Um, she wrote um, um, uh, The Watchmaker of Filigree Street and The Bedlam Stacks. And those two books, which are the first two books, are really wonderful books. Um, I, I like reading uh, mysteries sometimes, but I haven't been doing that lately. What I like to do in a circumstance where I'm totally blocked off from the rest of the human world is uh-huh. uh, read, read um, uh, poems. You know, you read, not, you don't just sit down with a book and start reading a bunch of poems, you know, well, no. read, read a poem and then all the rest of the day you're thinking about it and ruminating on it. And uh, they're like, um, they're like little gems you can turn around in your head over and over and over again. And um, especially, you know, not not um, difficult guys like Elliot, who's you know just deliberately doesn't want to be understood, uh, or even Yates. But I love Auden, and um, I've been reading a lot of the local people who write poems. And uh-huh. uh, my um, my students up at the prison wrote a lot of poems, and um, just they're like little cries from the heart, and um, they're very there's something very human about them. You know, on a level you don't get with a novel for some reason. And there's also you mentioned the the, the local poets, but there's I, I know there's this whole school of of Gary Snyder, and uh, I, I guess uh, and he was connected connected with friends of ours like Stan Robinson and um, right, yes, uh, Stan uh, devoted to Gary. Um, there are a lot of uh, people you've never even heard of who write. And they don't always write with the same polish and, you know, Pulitzer uh-huh. Prize type stuff, Nobel stuff. But they write honestly. And um, the joy of crafting something that says one little thing perfectly is, uh-huh. uh, you know, you just can't get enough of that. When you run into a, somebody who writes, uh, uh, like uh, uh, Richard Howard, you remember him? I remember him, he sure. Was, yeah. Um, he doesn't write great stuff all the time. He has wonderful lines and wonderful moments. And um, We should talk about this. I mean, because one of my favorites from, let's see, Richard Howard was one. There was a guy from the Northwest. William Stafford was one I used to read. Right. Yes. Right. And, and uh, uh, there are, um, uh, 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 and the St. Vincent Millay. You oh, know, yeah. Everybody thinks of only that Bronco poem. 
wrote these most amazing sonnets. And uh, I really, really like that. And um, the uh, who else? Um, well, no, we don't uh, have to. Are, uh, yeah, but there are so yeah. many uh, undiscovered treasures in poetry that um, it's just really fun to do and very, very satisfying. And no, there are uh, something you your, think about um, while you're washing dishes. Yeah, exactly, and and something you can which I do a lot of. <laughs> well, what about your own work? Uh, you have a novel coming out. If it's not out already this fall, is this your Mongol novel? Yeah, yeah, I have a novel coming out in September from a press called Ring of Fire. This was a a book uh, I started a couple of years ago about um, the Mongols in the Middle East. Of uh, you know, they took Baghdad and then they took. Damascus, and they took Aleppo, and they were sweeping down toward Egypt, and they ran into the Mamluks, and boom. Um, and uh, I've always really liked the Mongols. Uh, heart of the world, heart of the world. And, that, but, and I, I knew it was never going to sell, sell to a commercial publisher, because they don't even look anymore at standard historical fiction or classical historical fiction. So I just wrote it because it was fun. And I was going to put it up online and, uh, as a Kindle direct, and uh -huh. I did. The next day, a publisher called me and said, we want this book. So okay, well, um, I was very heartening. So people can, well, say September is, is here. We're in September. So yeah, it's, so, yeah they're, they're on track, they say. I keep forgetting it's already September. Yeah, they're, they're on track to publish it. They want, they want me to do some interviews. They're doing an audio book. Um, they're very... They do mostly uh, sci-fi and SF and uh, fantasy. And uh, I'm sorry, I don't mean to say sci-fi. I know Charlie would kill me. I know. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but um, they want to start doing historical fiction, and they're going to use me as the flagship, which is, you know, a nice feeling. And um, it, it makes a lot of sense. You and I have talked about this, and you and I and Charlie, we're talking about Charles Brown, our mutual friend and the founder of Locus, who's been dead for what? 10, 12 years now? Oh, I don't even want to think about it. The world died when Charlie died. Well, but the point is, he said, he always argued that, at least the way you write historical fiction, invites readers to approach it as though it were fantasy. You don't explain anything about the world. You put us into a world, and we have to find our way around it. The only difference is that your world is real, and what we're finding out about it is reality, as opposed to finding out whatever world building the author has done. Does that make sense? Well, yeah, I think that's very true. The, 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 the game with historical fiction is to find out everything you can and then make it make sense. And uh, in, a, in that, that immediate way, as it was experienced by people who lived through it, and um, which is not always that easy. You know, I mean, it isn't easy at all, as a matter of fact. Um, because when the closer you get to the actual data, the more confusing and the more contradictory mm -hmm. it gets often. And um, it, so that's the, the intellectual exercise. Uh, the fun of doing, of writing narrative, which I love to write narrative. Um, mm -hmm. just when it, you click and you're going along at the right rhythm, it's like it writes itself. But you have to submit to a ton of data, and also you have to give up all your preconditions, your pre-existing uh, assumptions, and go from it as if you were coming at it fresh. 
the book that I'm working on now about the revolution is um, I, I don't know what I was doing in school when we studied the American Revolution. <laughs> I wasn't pay attention because this a lot of this stuff is totally fresh to me, and um, it's a it's set where I grew up. You know, uh, there's the uh -huh. Battle of Long Island where Washington got his ass handed to him, and the Battle of Harlem Heights where same thing. And then they drag themselves across New Jersey, poor little lame guys, you know, being harried by um, Hessians with bayonets and um, walking out of their shoes and eating biscuits and salt pork. And, you know, uh, they get to uh, Philadelphia and, and Washington's in desperate uh, shape. He doesn't have any men left, practically. Uh -huh. Most of them are sick or deserted or, or and the ones he has left, their, enlistment, their enlistments are all coming due and they're going to leave and he has to do something. So he does this great assault on Trenton where they catch the Hessians with their pants down, almost literally, and, you know, wipe them out. Just totally, they took over a thousand prisoners or something. Wow. A huge number of prisoners, killed a bunch of people. And uh, then... Um, they went back across the Delaware and how the, the British general comes roaring down from Brunswick to, uh, it make, to get it, it out. It it, you're making it sound like Washington was every bit the general that we've been told he was. Well, yeah, that was, that's the thing. You go in and you think Washington, my God, the guy said, you know, he's not a quarter. He's just a, you know, a yeah. face. And you've seen the face. And um, I saw Hamilton a couple of months ago and mm -hmm. um, he's, he's the hero of that. Uh, but you know, he's, but when the more you read about him, the more you realize that this is a really amazing kind of person. He, first of all, he never left. He was there all the time. Whatever they were, he was there making sure that the guys got along, encouraging them, pushing them along, um, and uh, getting them across bridges and making sure they got fed. And um, just, he didn't go home. He never went home. And he just stayed with the army. And he, wasn't a, a particularly gifted general at first, but he learned fast. And what he learned was he had to make the British fight it his way and not their way. Their way, of course, is long lines of guys. Yeah. Right. But and well, the sounds... American way is guys hiding behind trees and, and stone walls and popping off. And um, he made the British do that. And it wasn't so much even that he beat them. There are not that many great victories. There's Trenton and Princeton uh -huh. and Saratoga. But uh, and then uh, Cowpens in the south and Yorktown, but mostly the British just ran out of steam. I mean, they were bringing everything across three thousand miles of ocean. Yeah, all right. The... Um, and it's an enormous continent, you know. They, well, it'll it'll be it'll be sometime next year before we get to read this. I, yeah, I, it's not. Uh, yeah, I'm still in the, in the rough draft. But anyway, I'm having a great time doing it. So. Well, great. All right. Well, we're, we're over our time as I knew we would be. We're at almost uh, at, at 20 minutes, but yeah. I've been oh, spending this time. Well, uh, you can figure it out. Oh, okay. okay. Thank you very much. Okay. Thank you. And it's been a wonderful half, well, 20 minutes with Cecilia Holland. And this is Gary Wolf. And thanks again, Cecilia. No problem. Thank you very much.